In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We began Advent reflecting on the armor of light, about this light of Christ that shines on our lives to illumine us and to show us who we are and where we are and what it is that we're doing. It illumines for us our path and our destination, like the moon and the stars, it's our compass. And when we allow our lives and our destination to be illumined by the light of Christ, uh, then we have that armor of protection uh, because we have the consequences of righteousness. We have the good things of walking according to the ways of God. And we talked about how it's not just enough to know where we're going. It's not just enough to know what's right and to know what it is that we're supposed to be doing. But we have to desire it. Our hearts and our minds have to be transformed. And that is hope. Uh, hope means that we have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that disciplines our lives and gives us uh, the things that we need to really change the way that we live. And the result of that is righteousness, the righteousness and the rejoicing uh, from it that we experience through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're talking about that rejoicing, we're talking about that joy that we experience in living in righteousness and the preparation that's necessary to bring about that joy. Rejoicing is an expression of joy. When we rejoice, we're saying joy is within me and we are expressing it. The beautiful thing about joy is that it's not like happiness. Happiness comes and goes. Happiness is fleeting. We can be happy one moment and not the next and not know why. But joy, even if we're grieving or mourning, if we're in pain or sorrow, even if we're in prison, we can have the joy of the Holy Spirit because it's deep and abiding and sustaining and it will maintain us in every dark and difficult situation of our lives and that is the promise of the Lord and the preparation that we need for that is a, a, a kind of accounting uh, the Lord promises an accounting and we see that throughout the scriptures we see the Lord talk about uh, this accounting Jesus uses lots of different parables to talk about a, a master and a servant he talks about a bridegroom and the the virgins that prepare their lamps. And all of these, he's talking about uh, the accounting that we're going to have to give as we prepare for the Lord returning. We're all going to have to answer for what we've been given. We've all been given time, talent, and treasure. And the Lord's going to say, what did you do with those things? And call us to an account. My job with the state, I have a supervisor. I meet with her every week. And I have to give an accounting. I have to say what I did with my time, what it is that I accomplished. I have to talk about the, the resources that I was given and the materials and the assignments and I have to explain them. And we all know that that's a good thing. We all know that an accounting of our lives and our work and our relationships is good. We have to be held accountable. And that's what the Lord is going to do with each and every one of us at the end of an age. Ask for an accounting. And so we have to be prepared because we want to enter into that accounting with joy. We want to be able to say, look at what I did. Look at what it was accomplished through you and, and, and through your, the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to uh, go into that meeting with the Lord with rejoicing and not with fear, trepidation, not with anxiety because we were befuddled and confused. We want to go in with boldness and with gladness. And so the prophet Isaiah is talking about how it is that the Holy Spirit will revive our hearts and our minds, will renew us so that we can uh, be these good stewards of the grace of God and go into that accounting with gladness. He uses, uh, Isaiah does in chapter 35 here, the allegory of the wilderness of the desert for our lives. And it's a really good one. 
The, the desert uh, surrounding Jerusalem is much like our desert. It's a desert that has uh, great changes in elevation. It's a desert that has lots of rock and boulder landscape. It has lots of ravines and gullies and uh, lots of things that are going to be um, hazards along the way, hazards in the path. And if you've ever spent any time in a desert like ours, you know that it can be very difficult to make your way through it because of all these changes and all of these obstacles. It's very difficult to walk through, not like a, a plane or a step, right, where there might be a smooth and flat surface. And uh, so this is our lives. This is the allegory for our lives. Our lives are like that, right? There are gullies and ravines. There are um, high escapes uh, and cliffs, and there are dangerous places, and there's places where we can lose our footing, and it sometimes it's easy to get lost and to get turned around. And that's the, the life that we have, and it can be very dry and very barren. And we experience that in our lives, right? We all do. And what the Lord promises is that he would bring rain, he would bring his Holy Spirit to refresh us and to strengthen us in that wilderness place. The Holy Spirit is compared over and over again to water, to a fountain, to a stream, to a river, to a creek, to this refreshment. And he would bring forth the, the gifts and the, the power and the grace that we need. And we read here that in this desert place, the Holy Spirit brings forth this rain and this sustenance so that a flower is blooming, this uh, flower of the crocus. And again, if you've ever done any kind of hiking in the desert and you've come across at the right time of year a beautiful wildflower that seems to bloom out of nowhere and all of a sudden you encounter amidst this dryness and this barrenness of beauty that uh, unfolds because of the gift of creation, it, it's amazing. It can take your breath away. And the, the beauty of that flower is the first key for us that the Lord is going to bring about through the power of the Holy Spirit beauty in our lives. There will be beauty and the way that we interact with one another, beauty in the, the discipline and in the hope and in the love that we have for one another. We'll see beauty in those things. The other thing to say about a flower is that it is um, reproductive, right? Flowers are a reproductive organ, and the whole point of the flower besides beauty is to reproduce, and that's the, the goal for us as Christians, right? The Lord has told us to reproduce, not just to, to bear our own children, but to raise up children and to reproduce as a group, as a community, as a family. We're supposed to be um, proclaiming the gospel and we're supposed to be encouraging one another and building up the children and the new in our community, right? We're supposed to be uh, feeding and healing and clothing and raising up for the reproduction of the gospel. And so the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is promising not only to water us, to sustain us, but to bring forth the beauty of a flowering and the reproduction of the faith in our lives. And the next thing he promises is that we'll have a highway. And again, if you've done any kind of hiking in a desert like ours and you've come across a path or maybe even an old railroad bed, right, where you have a raised flat surface that is going to go over these ravines and make a nice flat place uh, so you're not having to go up and down and through the boulders and things, uh, you realize how much more progress you're able to make, how much smoother your life is and how much more you're able to accomplish and this is what the Lord promises in our lives. It's not to take away the desert. It's not to take away the obstacles and the difficulties. But his goal is to, to allow us to make progress in a place that had once been difficult. And for us to be able to acknowledge a clear path. So it's not that our lives are made perfect and beautiful and there's nothing ever wrong. That's not the promise of the Christian life at all. The promise is that if we wait upon the Lord and we wait upon his voice, we wait upon the Holy Spirit... We'll have a clear understanding of the direction that we're supposed to go. And when we walk according to his ways, we'll find that we're making much more progress 
and accomplishing that faith, hope, and love and bringing about those fruits in our lives. We're going to start seeing them in more abundance and great in number and clear. We're going to be able to say, oh, look at what love has done in my life and what hope and faith have done. And of course, we see this culminate in John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is a, a culmination of the prophets like Isaiah. He's a culmination of the prophets like Elijah. And Jesus says this, right? That he is the Elijah who has come again. John the Baptist is the peak of the, the prophets of the Old Testament. And all that they did is culminated in the person of John. He is the preeminent of those prophets, right? Jesus is the greatest born among women. So Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and all those have found their peak in John the Baptist. And what's the result? of the peak of that life, prison, and off with his head. He's beheaded. Pretty exciting, huh? The promise of the faith, right? But there's a vast difference between suffering for righteousness and suffering for sin. It's a north and south difference. It's a, a, a positive and negative difference. It's as far from one as from the other. And so he is suffering because of righteousness. He's suffering because of the gospel. And so we notice that when he is in prison, he does not stop his ministry. He's continuing to minister. He's continuing to preach. And he's continuing to minister to his disciples. If, if you're reading just on the surface of this, you might think, did John not know who Jesus was? Was he uncertain at the end of his life? And that's not the case at all. We're not seeing John the Baptist lose his certainty about Jesus. We're seeing him sending the last of his disciples to Jesus. Disciples like Peter and Andrew had already joined Jesus' band, but a few of those disciples were remaining with John, and he's sending the last of these on before he dies. And he's saying, go and see if he is the one. Go and test and that's what we're supposed to do as Christians, right? We're supposed to be trying Jesus. We're going to come and see. We're going to see what difference do I see in my life? What happens when I rely upon him? How does my life change when I turn to him and rely upon the Holy Spirit? And so John's saying, go and see. And Jesus says, yeah, come and see what things have been done through the power of the Holy Spirit. See the healing and see the miracles and see the change in the whole world and in all of creation. And he says that to see that change, we have to respond to the music that's being played. We have to pay attention, right? And he tells this uh, beautiful little uh, allegory about the games of the children in the ancient Near East. He talks about these children that are singing a song. And this is a game that I think you might uh, have seen children play in a slightly different way, maybe in our own age. Uh, but where children love to see the opposite done, right? They love to see uh, the irony of somebody doing one thing and then, and then uh, doing and saying another, a kind of a clown play, if you will. And so the game that these children would play would be in the marketplace or in the street, and some of them would be musicians and some of them would be the audience or dancers. So some of them would pretend to play their horns and their trumpets and their harps, and they would play, say, a dance. And then the children would mourn and be sad, even though they were hearing a dance. And then they would play a dirge, and then the other children would laugh and sing. See, they would do the opposite, and they thought that was funny. And Jesus says, you're just like children in the marketplace. John the Baptist came, and he was uh, calling for repentance and fasting. And you said, what's your problem? Why are you fasting and repenting? And then I came and feasted and ate and drank, and you said, why are you doing that? Right? And so he's saying you're not happy with anything that you hear. You do the opposite. The question before us is, are we listening to the music that God is playing? 
Are we listening to the music of the Holy Spirit? Are we following that melody? Are we allowing his song to lead our lives? Are we dancing to his tune? Are we responding to the Holy Spirit? Are we waiting upon him to hear what's the Lord doing in this situation? What's he doing in this moment? What's he doing in, in my life and in this difficulty? What song is God playing and how should I respond? How should I dance? And this is what St. James is telling us in his letter. He's telling us how to dance. He's telling us how to wait upon the Lord to listen. St. James doesn't bring any attention to himself, but it's important that we know who he is. He's a brother of Jesus, right? He's a son of Joseph by a previous marriage. We read about several brothers and sisters that Jesus has through Joseph. And uh, none of them seem to be disciples at the time of Jesus's ministry. They're walking with him. They're watching what he's doing. They're moving along with that larger body of followers, uh, but they never really go all in until Pentecost. And at that moment, they become um, pillars of the ancient and early church. Uh, St. James especially, he uh, becomes called uh, James the Just. He becomes Bishop of Jerusalem, and he's martyred very early for his faith. And what St. James is teaching us here is how to listen for that music, how to listen for the Lord. And he says, um, first and foremost, be patient. Be patient. So we have to wait upon the Lord and we have to listen. He says that we're supposed to be patient and wait the way a farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. So going back to those waters that we wait for in the desert, right? that doesn't flower when we want it to. It doesn't spring forth the way we want it to. And often what we do is what St. James warns us about, which is grumbling to one another. We turn to one another and we say, my life isn't going the way I want it to. And that didn't happen the way I wanted it to. And this person didn't do what they were supposed to do. And we grumble and we fuss in our impatience. Rather than waiting upon the Lord and waiting to hear that music that he's playing so that we know how it is that we're responding, waiting to find his highway, waiting to find his path so that we can walk upon it. And that takes some waiting and some listening to do. Now this doesn't mean that we just pretend that our lives are great. That doesn't mean that we just say, oh, everything's fine, don't worry about it. We're supposed to be telling one another and communicating with one another about our lives. So he tells us how to do this in very clear language. He says, uh, first and foremost, he says, don't swear to one another. Right? Don't make these outrageous promises or use this broad language. He says, use simple language. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then he says that when we're suffering, so this doesn't mean that we pretend that we're not suffering. It means that we communicate it clearly to one another. When we're suffering, then we need to um, pray. We need to pray. Wait and turn to the Lord. If we're cheerful, we're supposed to sing praises. So in other words, we're not supposed to pretend that our lives are something that they're not. We're supposed to wait and discern where am I at, what's going on, and then we're supposed to apply the right antidote. Sing when joyful and pray when sorrowful or when suffering. And then he says we're supposed to go to the elders of the church. Now the word here, elder, is presbyter. We say priest for short, but it's the same word, presbyter. And in the early church, uh, the, the, the confession of, uh, of sin was done in public, one to another. Unfortunately, what's happened in the church is there's been a very strong progressive element through the last hundred years of the church, and people have begun to say, we don't need to confess our sins one to another at all. I can just confess my sins to the Lord in private. Scripture does not say that. 
Scripture says, confess your sins one to another. And in the early church, the, the profound power of doing that is very evident. And people would stand up in the middle of the service and confess their sins. And what we found was that became really messy. And so we said, okay, instead of people standing up in the middle of the service, we'll have them go to the priest, to the elder, and confess their sins. We see this every day in our society, the power of public confession. We saw it in the East African revival that took place in Kenya and Ethiopia and in Sudan in the beginning of the 20th century. And we see it every day in 12-step groups around the world. The power of transformation that we see in people's lives in a 12-step program is directly related to public confession in a group. When people confess their sins one another, one to another, they have transformative change in their life. And we've allowed that truth that is spoken clearly in scripture to be given to parachurch organizations and denied the power of transformation in the church because of this progressive private life of a Christian which has no place in scripture. St. James says, confess your sins one to another. Go to the elder and priest and have him pray for you, right? And so he says that we're supposed to be gently bringing those back to righteousness, bringing, reminding each other of the promises of God and of his righteousness. And the best news in all these verses, for me, comes at the bottom of the first page in Isaiah's passage. He says, it shall belong to those who walk on the way, even if they are fools. Isn't that great news? It's great for me. I don't know about the rest of you, but let me tell you, when I read that, even if they are fools, I said, thanks be to God. I don't have to be the wisest. I don't have to be the smartest, right? I don't have to be the most eloquent. Even fools will understand the highway of God and will receive his grace if we but wait upon him. He would bring the reign of the Holy Spirit in our lives and he would make flowering and we will rejoice. If you're in line at the store, if you're studying for a test, if you're alone in the dark, wait upon the Lord. The Holy Spirit will come. Be patient. He will bring flowering and we will rejoice. May our lives flower this day and forevermore in the rejoicing of the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.